There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've always been fascinated by adventure travel. But is it an addictive, somewhat selfish escape? Or could it be a powerful vessel for self-development? In this series, I'll be talking to some of the people I admire the most about why they do it, what they've learned, and what impact it has had on their lives. What does drive people to endure hardship while leaving those that they love to cope on their own at home? And is such risk-taking a reckless indulgence? Or could it be a simple crucible? in which one can resolve mental health issues and help find emotional balance in life. Born in Jamaica, Dwayne came to the UK aged six. His formative years in England were in inner city London and, wrapped in the world of street gangs, he became a victim of both knife and gun crime. After a life-threatening incident, Dwayne made the decision to change his life forever. He set himself the challenge of becoming the first black Briton to walk to the magnetic North Pole. Dwayne, welcome to the show, mate. Lovely to have you on. Thanks a lot, man. I'm happy to be here. Mate, your, your house looks like a proper explorer's house. Look behind you, you've got rucksacks and ropes and helmets and shit like that. <laughs> There's loads of stuff back here, but that's only because I'm not allowed to keep it in the rest of the house. It stinks, right. so they banned me. They right. said, look, they, they've kind of let me stay out here, which is the cold, damp, right. uh, dark part of the house. I mean, it doesn't look too bad today because there's some sun coming in, but normally this is my prison. Mate, um, for the sake of the audience, I want to go into your story because it's fascinating, but um, for the sake of the audience, we've, we've met a few times before, um, haven't we? And we're primarily, I mean, it's through the Scouts. We're, we're both ambassadors for the Scouts, and again, I'll, I'll chat a little bit about that later. But also, I, I didn't realise until I read your, um, your website yesterday that we were both at the same slightly pretentious event about eight years ago at Buckingham Palace. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I, do you know, I do remember that, yeah. That was that was an interesting event. Shall I tell you why? I didn't even know it was happening. Um, a few months before that event, someone contacted me saying, "Hi, Dwayne. There's a there's an event happening at the palace. Would you be interested?" And I don't know how uh, how you you know got the invite, but it was all like cloak and dagger and secrecy. I actually thought it was fake at first. So I was like, "Yeah, sure. Why not?" And instead of giving them my home address, I gave them my work address because I was like, "I'm not going to have them you know knowing my home right. address." Maybe two or so months before the event. A letter came to my workplace and my manager comes over. He's like, Dwayne, what, what's this letter? Do you know anything about a letter? I was like, no, I don't. Why? What's going on? And I work in a bank. So I'm assuming, have I made a mistake? And he kept saying, well, th- there are letters coming here for you. Do you want to tell me what the letter is about? I was like, look, John, I don't know what the letter is about. Just show me the letter and I'll explain it. Whatever it is, it's not nefarious. It's just either an error. And I started to make all these excuses and reasons. <laughs> and then him and my assistant branch manager came out and they dropped this letter down. And it came as it said to Dwayne Fields Esquire. Or so, and it was in a really nice yeah. packaging. And they were just yeah. as intrigued as I was. And I completely forgot about it until I opened it. And it said, oh, you're, you're, you're invited to Buckingham Palace and all the rest of it. But it was, it was brilliant because they, they made a big fun and joke of it all. But I was, I was getting really frustrated as well. You were born in Jamaica, yeah? And you've got your parents both Jamaican as well? Yeah, so my dad uh, lives in Jamaica. I've probably spoken to you more today, Ed, than I have him my whole life. I could probably pick him out in a crowd, and that's about it. Um, In terms of my mum, she was born here. um, So I think her mum was that real Windrush generation. So my mum was born here in actually in South London, in Brixton. And then she was backwards and forwards. Her mum died when she was quite young as well. So I've never actually met any of my grandparents. I've only ever met my great grandmother and a great aunt, but no grandparents ever. Okay. And um, but you grew up in Jamaica, even though she was. Yeah. She she was over here as well, was she? Yeah. So I remember I came to London when I was the summer before my seventh birthday. And up until that point. I'd only seen my mum maybe two times that I remember. 
Uh, she lived over here. I lived over there with my great grandmother. And I just, if you can imagine living in a rural part of Jamaica, it's sunny most days. You've got freedom as a kid. Like from your age, two, three years old, you have the freedom to come and go as you please. So for me, it was always about having the ability to leave the house, you know, after breakfast and come back just before dinner. And when I eventually got to London, it was like, okay, kids at age six don't go out by themselves. Nope, you can't stay out all day. There's so many restrictions. You can't climb a tree and get the fruit that you want to eat. Because again, as a kid, I'd make a slingshot, shoot a bird, roast a bird, that's it. I'd want some nuts, so I'd pick some cashew uh, fruit and I'd roast the nuts. I'd have nuts. I'd walk into the kitchen area of the house in Jamaica, which was just an outbuilding, and I'd pick up a knife at age four, five, six. And all that, you know, my great aunt or my great grandma would say to me was, don't break my knife. It wouldn't be, don't play the knife, you're too young. It wouldn't be, be safe. Don't break my knife. That was the key thing. I'd leave the house and I'd come back and I'd have a new pet. It'd be a parrot one day. It'd be a mongoose the next. Um, that's the kind of life that I lived as a four, five, six-year-old kid. So when I came to London now and it was all, don't go outside, don't play in the road. You can't stay out there. You got 10 minutes. You can play in the playground. It was so many restrictions, man. It was the toughest change of my life. Yeah, it sounds it. I mean, I, I, have, I was lucky enough to have quite a similar sort of upbringing as you. We, we grew up in rural countryside and, and was able to, you know, build dams and explore. It's the best, and, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? And it, it does, though, I think, give you quite an affinity to nature, doesn't it? I think if, if your early years are immersed in nature, then there's a connection to it that I think is hard to get if, you, if you're born in the city. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's part of my, my, the whole manifesto, my whole ethos on life and young people and the outdoors is all built off the back of that. I'm not afraid of being in the woods. I'm not afraid of being under, you know, some rain. I'm not afraid of being exposed. I'm not afraid to of being in the wilderness because it's something that I was accustomed to before I'd ever taken a car ride. It's something that I was accustomed to before I knew buildings could have three or more floors. So for me, that's my first love. That's my first experience. I, I was a feral child. So the outdoors, the wilderness, the aloneness, the, the I don't know, the isolation, it doesn't frighten me. And in actual fact, I find a bit of solace in that. I find comfort in that because I, I knew that place before I knew the city. So with young people now, or I, I guess you'd call them people from inner sea areas or urban or whoever you want to call them. I guess the thing is, it's a complete reverse. And I'm saying, let me introduce you to a world that I know and understand enough uh, and is familiar with. So I understand why they're fearful or might be apprehensive about going out there because everything's scary out there, isn't it? The weather's scary. The sounds you hear at nighttime and you know it when you're alone in the woods. If you're not familiar with what to expect, you can hear, you can see how your mind might play tricks on you. What's that sound? Hold on, is something big coming to get me? When fundamentally you know there's nothing big in the woods to get you, your mind starts playing tricks. Now imagine you were brought up in the city where you don't actually have that 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 knowledge that there's nothing out here that's going to hurt me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. With you. I, I mean, I have I have almost the same fear that I think people who are born in the city have of the outdoors. I have that of the city. I, I go into actual central London, like where the the city of London, it's and look up at these massive buildings and just think, yeah. how on earth does anyone? How do people get that organised? to build a building like that how do they i mean where do they even start you know it's just one of those employees like is i know how they don't even know each other i just find the whole thing baffling do you find that when you go away and come back all the buildings seem that much closer and almost like they're leaning in on you it's impressive isn't it i mean weirdly i do i'm not i'm not such a country bumpkin that i i don't like the energy of london like if i go if i go down oh, yeah, to, yeah. I, used to, I used to live in stockwell then i used to live in um battersea for a bit and camden different places in london oh, when yeah, i go yeah. back down i do like the the buzz of london but i i have to say my reset is not is not urban you moved to london and that was uh six years old was that right yeah so it's just before i turned seven i came to london um it was mad because if you imagine I, again back to where i lived in jamaica no gas, no electricity, no running water in the house. We had to walk 400 metres down the down the lane to collect water every morning because they shut the water off between... It, the water was only running between 5 and 7 o'clock or something like that. So everyone in this little community would get their water at that time. So that's the life that I came from. And then you move to London now and at age 6, going on 7, I've got this little Jamaican accent. So it's like I was conscious of how different I was because one... I couldn't make friends. The way you make friends is you go up to a kid, you say, oh, you kid, 
Who's your favourite TV character? Who's the best cartoon? And there's only one right answer. And if your answer doesn't match theirs, you're not friends. I couldn't do that because I didn't, I didn't never, I, I'd never watched the TV before. So I couldn't say to a kid, you know, what's your favourite? So for me, it was just keep your head down, look how everyone else does and copy them. And in fact, Ed, the, the worst experience of my life was um, I was seven years old. And this is this is weeks after I've just arrived in the country. Still not a big TV fan. And my teacher walk into the classroom. The teacher says, we're going to draw our favourite TV characters. At this point, I'm panicking, thinking, do you know, shit, I don't I don't know any TV characters. What do I do? So copied the kid next to me who did a really crappy drawing of Popeye. Now, my teacher was a damn liar. Because she comes over to me and she goes, oh, Dwayne, that's an amazing drawing, which I knew it wasn't. So I know she was lying. That's an amazing drawing. Who is it? If it was amazing, you'd know who it was. But it was a copy of my friend's poor drawing of Popeye. And I remember, Ed, just thinking, please don't ask me anything else because I don't know. And if you ask me what he does, what his superpower is, what, what is weak, I, I don't know. And I'll be, you know, you, you see that I'm lying and this isn't really my favourite. I just want to fit in. And that mindset of wanting to fit in is what I kind of lived with all the way through my teen years and all the rest of it, man. That, and up to that point, you'd just been interested in nature and stuff like that. But that was the point where you went, look, if I'm going to survive over here, I need to adapt. Absolutely. Um, it, it's exactly that survival mentality because I realised you need friends. Everything about being in, in, in England, in London, in school was stressful for me. Going to the lunch hall was stressful because I didn't know what the right foods to pick were. You imagine a little kid coming from the bush. They call the area that I come from the back of the bush in Jamaica. That's what they call it locally. So imagine going into a lunch hall and seeing mushy peas or seeing, I don't know, sponge cake and custard. These are things that are completely unfamiliar to me. So it was stressful just going in there like, what should I pick today? And I'll just look at what the kid in front of me picked and just pick the same thing because I assume that must be good. Sometimes it worked out, other times it didn't. But that's the kind of kind of um, that's the kind of game that I was playing daily in my mind. So you, you can see the survival mentality kicking in there. Just do what everyone else does. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, again, I, I see parallels in my own youth in the fact that mm. I mean, I was adopted. So diff completely different story, not a sub story, really. I've had a very, very privileged life. I, I totally acknowledge. But but I didn't have much. Um, I, I suppose, unlike you, you, you were quite strong in the fact that you knew that you loved the outdoors, you knew you loved um, um, plants and animals and stuff like that. But um, I, I adapted in order to be liked, basically. I worked out quite early on if, if I can make That's someone me, laugh. Ed. If I can make someone laugh or if I, if, I, if, I, you know, if I can make them feel happy, then I, if I do that thing more, then they're happy and therefore I see them smile and therefore I feel good about myself. And I think I would go as far as to say... I was still doing that when I decided to walk the Amazon. I, you know, I wanted to come back and have people say to me, you're really tough, so that I could then go, oh, right, I'm, I'm tough now. I, I've, I've, I've taken that one off. And it, it, it's just extraordinary, isn't it, how, how a, a child's behaviour, because it, it, it can drag on into adulthood, can't it? You know, I mean, definitely. The, but the adaptive behaviour that you do as a child can alter you forever. Ed, what you're saying there is exactly what I experienced. So all the things I did as a kid. All right. The scariest thing, that I, the worst moment of my childhood was this. I was here for a couple of weeks and I realised I wasn't making friends. I was sad. It's not a sad story because I laugh at it now, but it was a tough time. What I did was I figured the only thing that I know and I can offer anyone is my love of the outdoors and love of insects and wildlife. I don't have the knowledge to back up the passion. So I decided... I would, I watched the David Attenborough program and I decided, look, I'm going to go to the school. I'm going to get a load of insects and I'm going to teach these kids about insects. That's my contribution. Um, so I went to school, Ed, and I dug around in the garden. I found a whole load of wood lice and uh, there was a centipede in there. And you can see where this is going. I run over to a load of kids in a handful of dirt and wood lice and whatever else. And I'm like, guys, look, here's some wood lice. And there's the female verb, babies on her stump. And everyone ran away, screamed and just left me in the playground laughing at me. It was the toughest thing to deal with because that's the moment I realised my behaviour wasn't conducive with the behaviour of everyone else around me. So I said, keep your head down, just say yes and laugh at the jokes and play the games and do what they do. And that carried on all the way through, like you, all the way through my teens, all the way up into my 20s. And it hurts me to say it now, but 
I only did it because I wanted to fit in. I didn't do it because I felt it was the right thing to do, fitting in, you know, saying yes or laughing at jokes or sitting on a park bench or sitting in the estate or being in the... I didn't enjoy it. We'd sit there for four, five, six, seven hours a day just wasting time laughing at stupid jokes, which weren't funny. And even at the time, I thought, that's not funny, but I'll laugh just so they'll like me, just so I won't stand out. So I completely get where you're coming from, man. That's fascinating as well. Yeah, I mean, again... Everyone has their own story. Well, I, I don't understand the world that, that you entered, really, which is, you know, inner city London, um, you know, you're involved in gangs and stuff, and you do hear stories. And, and, and can you paint a bit of a picture about, you know, how sort of territorial it is, um, you know, how you have to fucking be on your toes all the time and, and be alert, and, and how dangerous it is, I suppose? I've never been to a war zone, Ed, but I've had a gun pointed at me four or five times in my life. Um, I've never been to a war zone, but I've got two stab wounds on my body and a cut in my back. I've been involved in um, street violence, not because of my behaviour, because I've never gone out. Other than the one time where someone stole a moped from me that I built from scratch and I marched onto an estate and demanded it back, um, which is probably the stupidest thing you could do. Um, I marched onto the estate out of anger, frustration, and I wanted it back. I got into a little tussle with one guy and... A minute or two later, he came back with a gun. He pointed the gun at me and he pulled the trigger twice. Um, the way it is in, in, in these kind of areas, East London, for example, that's the area I grew up in, Stokey in Hackney. We lived on one estate. 90% of my spare time or free time was spent on that estate. I was in a very lucky and privileged position that I wasn't in beef with anyone in particular. I wasn't at war or at heads with anyone in particular. So I moved around between two or three or four different estates and I had friends and contacts there. But all it would take to set something off would be one dispute between the estate that I primarily uh, spent my time on and another one. There were times where you'd be sat on the estate and someone would run through the estate with a gun. You'd see them with the gun, they'd run to the other side, you'd hear two or three shots and then they'd be they'd run back again. Um, and that would be people from a different estate coming here because they heard someone's on the on, on the site. Um, what it looks like is the word territorial is the word you use in this. That's exactly what it is. Um, they talk about it as a postcode war. It's more of a estate war. You can be two estates in the same postcode. Uh, but what's yours? Your little community is, is your in group and everyone else is the out group. So they are potentially the enemy. Um, and it's about showing that you can stand on your own two feet at the very least. And if not, it's about showing how tough you are and how you can overcome anything that anyone says to you or tries to do to you and how you can get them back more than they can get you. It's about showing no weakness sometimes. And I think that's probably part of why there's so much mental health problems at the moment. Um, young people can't talk about their insecurities. It, talking about insecurities on an estate like the one I grew up in was seen as weakness. And any weakness could be exploited. So you couldn't show weakness. You had to be tough. You had to remain strong disregarding what you saw. I've witnessed people being stabbed. I've seen the knife go into someone. I've seen more street fights than I can count. I've seen shootings. You, you know what I mean? And it's a difficult thing to see and watch when you know or you feel it's so difficult you can't go to the police. Um... It's a difficult thing to witness when you know you can't talk to people around you about how difficult you found witnessing that thing that just happened. It's a hard thing to, 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 to live with when you constantly believe at any minute it could be me. Yeah. What do you think it was in you that... Um, I mean, obviously, you went along with it and you laughed at jokes that you didn't find funny. And, um, you, yep. know, um, I, 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 you know, a lot of, everyone understands that from a sort of playground perspective of, of, of going along with the cool kids or whatever it is. But... What do you think it was that set you apart? Why do you think you thought differently? Why do you think you weren't enjoying it like they were? I think, Ed, for me, it wasn't about thinking differently. It's about having the experience of being alone or being a place where I'd experienced peace before. And for me, the place that I'd experienced peace was always in the woodlands or in the forest or in the fields around where I grew up in Jamaica. So where I'd experienced something else, I had something that I could tie what genuine peace and comfort and um, self-appreciation felt like. Whereas many of the people I grew up around, they'd never experienced a place where they'd had absolute quiet. You know from your own experience, when you're out in the wilderness, um, there's moments where you can just pause 
and just listen to the sounds of nature. And there's a certain level of um, euphoria in that. They probably have never experienced that because there's always been the ambient noise, the stressful environment, the, um, the, the risk of, you know, someone coming up and grabbing you or robbing you or stealing from you. It's very real for them. It's real for me, but I had somewhere that I could think back to uh, as being my escape. What did you, what did you end up doing? I mean, obviously you've, you've been stabbed twice. Um, you've had guns pulled on you a number of times. Um, but what changed in your life? What was the key moment and what, and, and what did you decide to do? So the very first time I had a gun pulled on me, I think I was 16, 17 years old. And, um, friend of mine was doing what 16 17 year old boys do we're heading to a cinema to um to meet some friends and a guy comes up and he goes ah oh, guys do you want to help me push my car it's stuck in the road and we walked around the corner to help him push his car and as soon as we got around the corner he turned around and he had this gun it was the rustiest ugliest gun i've ever seen in my life this thing was it looked like if the breeze changed direction it would just fire off um, and this guy, his face was dry and he looked messy and he looked like he was on drugs and a substance abuser. And I wasn't frightened of him and I wasn't frightened of the gun, but I was concerned about his behavior. He seemed erratic. And it's only as we got closer and realized that there wasn't a car that his behavior uh, seemed to get more heightened in terms of his. Um, it became more unstable. So I thought, even if I give this guy my uh, my wallet, which is just a bus pass case with a tenner in it. Um, and, and, a, and a one day bus pass. I thought if I give this guy my case, he's still going to shoot us. And I was, I was genuinely thinking that's it. It's over for me. But when he took my phone and took my bus pass and my 10 pounds and he jumped into another car and drove off. The first thing I turned to my friend and said was, what are we going to do now? And he just, he looked at me and he said, no, we have to get somebody else now. And that's the mentality that I had for a little while. An hour or two later, I said, look, let's just go home. And we called it a day on that, that situation. Um, there was another time when I was stabbed, it was because I was helping out a friend. I was chased by a group of maybe 12 boys. I was stabbed and a friend was stabbed. I ended up in a, an ambulance um, on my way to hospital, a uh, load of stitches, uh, you know, some treatment later. The, the following day or two, I was out and I was all right again. Nothing was done. Um, some guys jumped out of a car, dragged me into the car at one point when I was about 19 years old. Uh, turned my face around to the passenger in the front seat and he said no that's not him they chucked me out the car um i was walking through the park a guy ran up with a gun and he, he you know what have you got give me what you've got emptied my pockets had nothing he left me alone i've been really lucky on this one occasion the final occasion that, was, that a gun was pulled on me was like i said before i built this moped from scratches me and my brother we spent months building this thing um i rode it it crashed well i crashed it it wasn't built properly um I walked home, limping, bleeding, in agony, uh, rebuilt it, made my brother test drive it this time. He was pushed off and it worked perfectly, um, but he was pushed off of it and it was taken to an estate not far from where we lived. So I walk onto this estate, demanded the bike back and Ed, for the most part, it was, yeah, take it, it's crap anyway, we didn't want it. But I was so angry and I was so frustrated and I was so fed up that I walked over to one guy who had just a little plastic panel about about this big and I snatched it out of his hand and I turned to walk away and he pushed me and I turned back around and I pushed him we had a little you know push and pull and I think he came off worse off walked away two minutes later he came out with a gun and um he lifted his hand and he pointed a gun at me and I heard click by the time every single sound I, I don't want anyone to ever face you know someone with a gun pointed at them um, and this is this is probably why I think the armed forces are some real bad boys because they go out there and they do this day in, day out, man. I don't know how they do it. But this guy pulled, and I don't know if they have this experience as well, but when he pointed the gun at me and pulled the trigger, it didn't matter what the sound was. Like I said, it could have been an opera singer. It would have sounded like the bullets coming towards me, if you know what I mean. It, it, it sounded like the gun went off. It sounded like it went bang, but it was just a click where the bullet misfired and he cocked it back and he pulled it again. And at the time, I remember looking at my brother and just trying to say to him, you don't have to do this. And the guy just pulled the trigger anyway. And um, minutes later, like well, moments later, the people that were around kind of grabbed him and said, oh, don't waste your time. Yeah, leave it, leave it, leave it and took him away. And I remember picking up the pieces and just, you know, patting myself down to just double check that I hadn't been shot. And we lived about 10, 12 minutes walk away from this place. And in between that time, we of walking home, pushing this bike, um, 
I remember we stopped maybe three or four times just so I could double check, you know what I mean? Just to, hold on, what's, let me just check that I haven't been shot and missed it or so. And the missing denominator from all the other experiences, uh, which I think is why it didn't change my mindset or my thinking or my behaviour, was that this was the first time my younger brother was with me. For him to be in a situation where a gun would be pointed in our direction and him to be at that level of risk, I couldn't, I couldn't live with it. So I decided, and the fact that everyone was saying, Dwayne, we heard what happened. What do you want to do? We should get this guy. Let's get, I thought, I don't want to get this guy. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy my brother's here. I got my bike back. Um, I got my bike back. <laughs> it was important to me at the time. It was important to me at the time. I thought to myself, look, I got my bike back. My brother's safe. I'm here. Anything that I do now would be, again, playing up to the crowd, doing it to fit in or doing it because it's expected. And I decided at that point, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to just, I'm going to be me. I'm going to, I'm going to do uh, what the person who I am likes to do. And the only thing that I could think of or the earliest memory I had of the real version of myself was that little kid running around in the woods and, you know, lifting up that rock and climbing that tree and, um, you know, finding that baby, whatever, or, you know what I mean? That was the earliest version of me. And I thought I need to go back to that. That's nice, man. So what did you do? So the first thing I did was, um, I remember the first thing you do is you start looking around us. Okay, what can I do? Um, I realised that I, I'd never visited Epping Forest before and I knew Epping Forest was there. So one day we were driving through Epping Forest and I stopped the car. I think I was, I'm sure I was driving. I stopped the car and um, I pulled over in one of those little, you know, those makeshift car parks. And I got out of the car and I looked around and I walked off for about 100, 200 metres, 100, 150 metres or so. I wasn't walking for any more than about a minute and a half. And I remember I just paused for a minute, Ed, and... Bruv, it was just like, it felt like I did when I was six years old, man, just for a moment. And it was like, bruh, I can't hear any traffic. And all I can hear are a couple birds and I can hear some breeze and I hear the leaves. And I was like, this feels right. So after that, a friend of mine said, oh, um, I know of an organisation that's doing um, a walk, doing the Three Peaks. So I thought, great, I'll do the Three Peaks. That sounds exciting. Didn't know what it was. Didn't have a clue. Um, didn't even Didn't even Google it, man. Um, I just said, what is it? He goes, yeah, they're going to climb three mountains. I was like, but I've never climbed a mountain. He said, you don't need an experience. It's fine. You're quite fit, aren't you? I was like, yeah, I am quite fit. And I went off and I did it and I found some new muscles that I didn't know I had. Um, Every one of them was aching, um, cramps, but we did it and we did it in under 24 hours and there was nothing like it, man. It felt like I was doing exactly what I was built to do. During this time, were you still living in the same house and therefore bumping into the same people? Was it, you know, you know, when you do change your lifestyle, sometimes some of the thing that's really difficult is everyone around you is still doing the same old stuff. How how was that for you? To be honest, Ed, yeah, I I did a lot of it in secrecy because I wasn't ready to expose myself yet. If you know what I mean, um, I wasn't ready to go up against everyone saying oh that's an idiot thing that's oh that's what white people do oh black people don't do it. oh we don't do that oh uh d- hackney people don't do it. that's the kind of thing that man them don't do that and i thought to myself i don't want to have to contend with that right now so i'll do all this stuff in secrecy and in actual fact when the when the thing with the gun happened i'd already decided in my mind that i wanted to do something different but i didn't know what it was and maybe i was waiting for that push a few months after the gun thing happened um a friend of mine was shot and killed about 20, 20, 25 meters away from where the gun was pulled on me. This guy was a super cool dude. He, you know, he was a lifeguard at the local the swimming pool. He played football for a proper team. Like, do you know what I mean? He, he, he was doing well for himself and he had ambition and he was doing really, he was doing all the positive things, all the right things he was doing. And he was shot in the back, uh, randomly. Um, and then for me, it turned into, I need to do something more to change that kind of behavior. And that's when I, I started to look at what more can I do? I saw Ben Fogel and James Cracknell one morning on BBC Breakfast saying, we've just rolled across the Atlantic. And I thought, whoa, that's the kind of thing that I want to do to give myself a platform to be able to talk to people and say, look, there are so many options in life. The small world that we've restricted ourselves, and by we, I mean all the kids I grew up with, not just black or white or green or who, just all the kids in my area. I wanted them to look at me and say, look, if that weirdo can do something, then I can do something too. So when I heard them say, look, we've just rolled across the Atlantic. Next, we're going to be walking to the South Pole. I thought, rah, 
that's it. I've never thought about going to the poll. I wonder if any kids ever thought about it. I'm going to do it. And uh, sure enough, they said, look, we're looking for people to join our team. We're looking for one person to join our team. Uh, selections will, you know, start in so and so. I didn't send my application in until I think a good three weeks after I'd seen this piece. So I think selections had already started and I got a message back saying, unfortunately, we can't let you in now because all the things have started and it'd be unfair. Um, would you consider going to the North Pole? And that's when the idea was born, man. My automatic reaction, and, and please don't judge me for this, but have been in, in that situation, I need to move. I need to get out. But you just decided to change who you were. But but do you still live in the same area? Do you still you, do you still live in Hackney? No, so I, I don't live in Hackney anymore. I left Hackney a couple of years back just because I, I wanted to be, um, I don't know, I just wanted a bit of peace and quiet, to be honest. But this this incident um, it didn't make me think, oh, I'm terrified, I need to leave. To be honest, I'd experienced so much violence and seen and witnessed so much um, before this that this was just another day. And the only difference between this day and any other day was um, the fact that my younger brother was with me. I'd experienced it alone or with friends um, so many times before. I've seen so much before. I've been in the mix of so much before that this was, like I said, it was Tuesday. It was Wednesday. It was Friday. It, it was just another day. Um, eventually, I moved out of Hackney. I, I, so I got kicked out. I was homeless at one point. I got kicked out of the house. Um, I think I was 20 when I got kicked out of my mom's house. Um, and again, she she told me a few truths about how I how I came about and you know, it's not her fault. It's no one's fault. I was the result of a very short relationship. It's just the way life is sometimes. Um, and I don't think we've ever had a real mother-son relationship. It was more of a um, guardian, more of a guardian relationship. And I think that tenure ran out when I was about 20 and she just said, leave the house. I left the house with one bag on my back and a bin bag of clothes. And I remember I spent three days in a hotel in Frisbee Park because they were really cheap back then. They're like, you know, 25, 30 quid a night. Um, I spent three days there. All my money was finished after three days. I rode the night bus for a day and a half or, or, or a, a day and night and then another half a day. And then I wandered around for a little while. I slept on a train one night and um, I slept on a train. And in the morning, the guy, one of the, I think he was a train driver, an engineer came out and he, he just looked at me and he goes, um, at that point, I was thinking, yeah, this guy's going to shout at me. He's going to chase me off the train. He's going to do something. So I was almost ready for an argument. And he just looked at me and he said, are you OK? I was like, yeah, I'm OK. I'm fine. And he said, you sure you're OK? Did you sleep down? I was like, yeah, I did. And he, he turned to me and he said, oh, you look like you're having a rough time. I was like, oh, man, I don't need to talk to you right now. I don't need this right now. And he kind of just looked at... um he lifted his hand up and he showed me a ring and he said, you see that ring there? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he goes, it's a nice ring, isn't it? And I didn't even look at the ring, to be honest. I was like, yeah, it's a nice ring. Just to, you know, keep him calm enough not to yell at me and run me off the train. So I was like, yeah, 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 I'll just play along with this. And he goes, that ring had to be beaten and bent and broken to, to, to turn it into what it is today. And at the time, I just thought, it's just talk, I can't be bothered. But as we pulled into the station from the depot, I got off the train, never saw the guy again. And I just started thinking, hmm, had to be beaten and bent and broken and go through a whole load of crap to get to where it is today. And I started to run parallels between me, rightly or wrongly, between me and that ring. And I thought, maybe there's more to this that I need to do. And that was that that was the moment that I decided, yeah, I need to um, I need to do something, man. And that's when I found I decided to go uh, stay at my cousin's house for a couple of days. I was there for a couple of weeks in, 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 in the end. And then I got my own place and eventually moved out of Hackney. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I did a podcast with Joe Simpson um, about three weeks ago, I think, and um, one of the things that struck me was that his drive was. Um, was very angry. In fact, it was fury. You know, he 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 had the rope cut on him, fell into a crevasse. The whole touching the void story, but but it was it was anger. And now you have a lot of things in your um, childhood and and as you were growing up, and a real reason to be angry. Um, you you know you estranged essentially from your dad and difficult relationship with your mum and and all of this stuff that was happening in the sort of street gangs and stuff. And yet. Unless I'm mistaking things, you don't seem to be an angry person. You seem to be somebody who is, who who is who, who is kind of innately positive, rather than you, you're not sort of channeling anger here, or are you, and just hiding it very well? Bruv, you know what it is. So the person who I had my first contacts with was my great grandma. Everyone said she was this miserable person. Honestly, she was never miserable. She would joke, we would laugh, we would giggle, we'd walk, we'd talk. She'd do things like break a branch, Ed, and say, chew that. And I'll chew it and it would be all bristling. She'd say, now there's no excuse for you not brushing your teeth. That's the kind of person that she was. I think I channel her more than anyone else. Everything I've been through, it's okay because I'm still here. Everything has led me to this point where I'm sat here talking to you today. Everything has led me to the point where... I'm the proudest scout ambassador. I think I've come as long away as any other scout ambassador has come uh, from where I started. I have a family now. I love the person I am and I love the influence that I have. And I love the fact that there's people around me willing to listen to me now. Um, I love the fact that I've possibly encouraged other people to do something that they might not have thought of doing. I don't think I've got any anger in me, to be honest. I mean, I still hate that person that drives really slowly on a road <laughs> when I'm driving. Yeah, you know what I mean? But I don't think I've got any anger in me, man. Um, I'm in a very unique position. My whole purpose of living is I work with people and I get to go on adventures and have fun. Um, there are people who are envious of me at this moment in time. It's my duty to enjoy what I'm doing. It's my duty to make the most of what I have. And that's all I'm doing, man. Well, I was going to say, do you think you've matured into that? And, and like you said, you started a family now. Do you think being a dad has kind of matured that attitude, or you you were there already? Do you know what it is as well? I think people said to me my whole life, I've got an old soul, and I think it's been because again, my great grandma being raised by someone who's really old, it kind of levels you out, it softens you down, it makes you um, a little bit more conscious of what's going on around and other people's needs. And I think I've always had that. So do you know that I was a, I, as a, I, I, I'm still a domiciliary care worker. Despite all that I do, I'm still a domiciliary care worker because I think it's my duty to help people. I, I, I go on these adventures, but that's the side of my life that no one will ever see. And this is the first time I've actually spoken about it. I've been doing it for like four years now, man. So with everything that I'm doing, I do it because I feel like it's my duty. It, it bring It levels me out. So Again, it's by choice. I've got the best life, man. And I was going to say, every single thing back here um, represents somewhere I've been or something I've seen that other people might not be lucky enough to see. So I have to look at that and say, do you know what? God willing, I don't. But if I die tomorrow, I would honestly die thinking, do you know what? I've, I've, I'm, I'm happy. I'm a happy person now. Such a nice attitude, mate. I, I, I'm in admiration, actually. I, I, I couldn't claim to have Nobody's told me I'm an old soul. They always say you're an immature idiot. Yeah. No, but I'm childish. I'm, I'm so childish. But people say, oh, do you know when you sit down, you're an old soul? I'm like, yeah, probably. I, I take that with pride, man. Yeah, I would. I would. Um, just to complete your, I, I suppose, the, the arc of your story. Um, yeah, so you've decided you're going to walk to the North Pole. But, I mean, anyone could decide they're going to walk to the North Pole. How did you manifest that? How, how, how did you physically make it happen? So I've explained already that it was all to do with the Ben Fogel and, yeah. and, uh, yeah, and yeah. James Cracknell thing. Um, so when I decided, yeah, I'm going to write to these people, I've written off to them and I get a letter back saying, unfortunately, selections have started. Would you consider yeah. going to the North Pole? I thought at this stage, look, I'm a black kid from Jamaica. I'm growing up in inner city London. As far as I'm concerned, a pole is a pole. Snow is snow. Cold is cold. So I thought, yeah, why not? I then start looking into it. So I did some extensive research, man. I spent like five minutes on Google, 
North Pole. <laughs> and I just kept clicking, clicking, clicking. Uh. And the first thing that comes up is obviously a map of the location. Start looking at the map. I'm like, ooh, that's quite far. Oh, it looked cold. Oh, what, minus 50, you say? And I clicked again and I saw this image of this guy called Matthew Henson. And it's a black guy. And at the time, he was pegged with being the first person to arrive at the magnetic North Pole. So obviously, uh, looking at this guy and seeing something, I just thought, oh, never knew black people were adventurers. Let me look into this. And I started to draw parallels between this man's life who lived 100 years ago or did it 100 years before I was meant to do it by some strange coincidence. I thought, oh, he's estranged from his parents. Me too. Oh, he is good with his hands. Oh, me too. He's a good navigator. Not sure if I am, but I'll find out in due course. And I started finding parallels with this man. So I decided, yeah, do you know what? I'm going to go for it. So I sent back a letter saying, I want to go for it. They said, right, send a deposit. And it was £23,000. So I sent some money in um, to secure my space, which was scary, by the way, because I'd never seen £23,000 before in my life, let alone be looking to find it in, in 18 months now. So at the time, I, I sent over a couple of grand, which is all I had in my savings. For six months or so, every time I got paid, I'd split my wage in half, send that money over. Uh, my student loan, I didn't spend it on books. I sent that over to these guys. Um, I even took a loan and tried to go cap in hand asking for money. So I did everything to raise the money. And eventually I got there. I, I, I got a small loan and I, and I got the money to go. The hardest part of the whole experience, Ed, was telling people that I was going to do this abstract, abnormal, unusual, unexpected thing. It was so hard, in fact, that I didn't tell people. I told a local newspaper before I told any of my friends. And I did that because I was frightened that they'd ridicule me and laugh at the idea and tell me it's so stupid that I'd give up on it. So I told a local paper and the date was printed. I remember um, a friend of mine calling saying, bruv, are you climbing the North Pole? And I just thought, you idiot. First of all, no one climbs the North Pole. It's not a pole. <laughs> it's just a space on the ground. You know what I mean? So I was ready and I was I was primed for an argument. And, you know, two or three other people called me to say similar things. And it was the same response. You're an idiot. I don't want to talk about it. Leave it there. Do you know what I mean? And after a while, people did start telling me it was a stupid idea. And they still did start telling me that, oh, there's no black people that's ever done this. And, oh, who have you ever seen from Hackney that's walked there? You can't do it. You won't finish it. You're going to die. You're going to lose fingers and worse. And I just, I became a recluse, Ed, mm -hmm. because I realised there was a lot of people saying negative things. And it was starting to wear me down a bit. Um, as much as I loved the idea, I was starting to think maybe it's not the best thing. So I started to stay away from people for the most part. Um, I started to look at ways to train and prepare because clearly I wasn't I wasn't Arctic ready. So I thought, right, let me look at training for the North Pole. And I saw people pulling tires to simulate pulling a, a sled or a polk. So again, I was still embarrassed about the whole idea. I still thought people would laugh at me, which they did. Um, so I decided I'll do all my training at night in Hackney Marshes because it's big enough that I can stay away from people. And I remember, I think it was probably the very first night that I did this, I rocked up at Hackney Marsh got myself ready, tied a rope around my waist, had two tyres um, tied at the back and I started walking. And I don't know if you felt this, but when you're training for something, when it starts yeah. to burn is when you start to enjoy it because you're like, ooh, this is working, okay. making progress. And I remember just getting to that feeling and I went around a corner right near the canal and I heard the scariest thing in, in life, man, the scariest thing imaginable for a you know, 21, 22-year-old. Uh, sorry, I think at the time I was about 24, 25 it was the scariest thing imaginable. It was a group of boys, man. There was about seven or eight boys just up ahead, standing around, smoking and talking and laughing. And I was like, oh, shit. And I paused. I was like, should I just turn around and walk away now? And just as I had that thought, I remember hearing one of them saying, what's that? Who's that? What's he doing? And I was like, oh, man, they've seen me. And this was the moment where I said, do you know what, Dwayne? Just hold your head up hold your chest out and just walk past them. So I started walking and um, sure enough, for a moment, I started to feel really confident. But then they started to giggle and I heard them start laughing and I heard them saying things like, oh, he's a madman. What's he doing? What's he pulling? Uh, what does he look like? Look at him. Look at this guy. And it just, it carried on and it carried on and it, and it felt like it was a 20 minute ordeal, man. And eventually I got close enough that they could see me and they were within five or six feet of me now, looking dead in my eyes and laughing at me and pointing and giggling. And they were having that, 
that belly aching laugh at, at me, at my expense, at what I was trying to do. And what I was trying to do was for them as much as it was for me, because I wanted them to look at me and say, actually, if that guy can do this, I can aspire to more as well. And the very people I was hoping to impress or to at least become someone who they would look at and say, well, actually, that guy did all right. They were laughing directly at me and I walked off and it carried on and I can hear them in the background laughing and giggling and just really having a real ruffle at my expense. And I never felt so low in my life, man. After that point, I, you can imagine I stopped going to Hackney Marshes to do my training. And I started doing my training at, even later in Clisso Park. So I started going to Clisso Park at midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I carried on with the boxing and I carried on with the football and I did running. Are we so doing it in the middle stone. of the night? Why? Yeah, why in the middle of the night? Because no one would see me. Oh, really? That, literally that level of, 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 of covertness, right? Okay. I didn't want anyone to see me because obviously I knew what people said about me when, I, when they knew about the idea. They said I was an idiot for doing it. They said I was going to die. They said I was going to lose bits. And then when I actually went out there and physically did something, I had eight or nine boys just laughing directly in my face within, within feet of me. They were laughing and pointing at me. And it was the most demotivating moment of my life, man. Um, so I thought, if I'm going to make this happen, I can't go through that. So I'd start doing my training at night time. So I went to Clisso Park. I went to the middle of the field and I started to just walk lengths as opposed to walk in a circle. Because if I walked in a circle, people who are walking along the street might see me and I didn't want to be seen at all. Crikey. OK, so you did that. You obviously did get the money to actually get the expedition off the ground. Um, was it everything that it lived up to? Can you describe a little bit about how that how that expedition went? Yeah, so the first part was training. Obviously, we did some training here in the UK. We did some training in Norway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Norway was a huge shock for me because at this stage, Norway was the coldest place I'd ever experienced. Um, I'd yeah. come from Jamaica to London where it was, oh, it's quite cold out here. Uh, and then from London to Norway, where the temperature in Norway was minus, I think it was about minus 26 when we got to the place up in the mountains where we were staying, minus 26, minus 27. And during the entire time with it, it was mine. It was at least minus 20. And I thought, oh, God, is this what it's going to be like? And then someone said it's going to be colder. So I was like, OK, cool. If I can if I can do this, then I can I, I'll try and do that. We eventually get to northern Canada. And we're getting progressively further and further north until we arrive at Resolute Bay. And I knew we were becoming more remote because the aircraft that we were getting on were becoming smaller and smaller and more and more unstable. When we landed in Resolute Bay and we're all unpacking our gear, I'm thinking, ooh, have I bitten off more than I can chew? Um, After about six or seven days, we head out to where we're starting this expedition from. And it's a really cold day and we walk to the top of this... um, we walk just up to this mount, this mount to the top of this, this, I don't know if it was a snow drift. It was just really big mount. It, it, I don't know what it was, but we walked to the top of it. And as I'm looking out over the ocean that we're about to cross, which is pretty much frozen, well, it was frozen. I start really seeing the scale of the thing that I've decided to do now. And I wasn't deterred. We walked for two or three days. We saw some polar bears, um, I got miserable at times because I did this really stupid thing, actually. Um, after, I think, day three or four, I started to blame my teammates for packing my polk wrong because I was really tired and my legs were aching and I was really lethargic. I was like, you guys packed my polk wrong. And I knew I was an idiot because one of my teammates said, but Dwayne, you packed your polk wrong. So, <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, good point. Isn't it funny um, how the brain does that? I mean, I, literally, I mean, my expedition partner when walking the Amazon, Luke, went home after five months because he was just so fed yeah, up yeah, with yeah. me because I was so yeah, mean yeah. to him. But it's like weird how expedition uh, stresses end up getting yeah. projected on other expedition members. Yeah, you blame other people, man. You do. Oh, that's so cool. I love the, I love the, um, the Amazon thing, by the way. Did you? Oh, thank you, man. Thank you, man. I mean, again, I relate to you when, when in terms of the overwhelmingness, I remember we flew over the Amazon to get to the start because the start was on the Pacific side. And like for hour after hour after hour, we're looking out the window going, we're still flying. Like it's still the yeah, Amazon yeah. blowers. Yeah. The enormity of it was just terrifying. This is scary. Oh, bruv. You overcame that. I know you overcame the, 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 the slight niggles between you and other group members and, and you got there to the, to the North Pole, yeah? Yeah, we arrived at the pole and I thought to myself, to be honest, it was a little bit of a, um 
anti-climax. And this is why. While we were walking, at the hardest times, I kept building up this image in my head that there'll be confetti and fireworks and people clapping and all this kind of crap at the end. Um, none of that existed. So when I got to that point where the map told us we're in the right place, the GPS told us we're in the right place, uh, we, we decided, yep, everything tells us we're in the right place. Uh, there was no crowds, there was no confetti, there was no fireworks, there was no um, flares, nothing. And I looked at the patch of snow on the ground and I thought, that's the exact same as 100 and 200 and 300 and 400 miles back that way. And I remember thinking, but I've done it. I've done what I said I was going to do and what everyone said I couldn't do or shouldn't do or wouldn't be. And I thought, I feel good until we had to walk another day beyond it to get to where we're being flown out from. And then I just felt miserable again. You always think going on an expedition like that, that the best moment's going to be at the end. And it's not. if somebody said to you, no, 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 it's going to be about, you know, the, the journey. You go, yeah, 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 it's not. It's about getting to the end. I want to get to the end. And then you do get to the end. You go, ah, I get what you mean now. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so for me, the, the end wasn't, do you know, to be honest, the end wasn't even the pole for me. I, I think I only realised what I'd done when I came back and I did the very first talk at this um, at this youth group. I did the very first right. talk and... For me, the response of the young kids that were there, it made it all so much better. It was like someone saying, here's a medal, here's a trophy for what you've done. Just the kids saying, what was it like? Did you see Santa? And just their intrigue. And to be part of that story and part of that intrigue, it just made it feel so good, man. That's amazing. I mean, I'm a little bit cynical sometimes. And so sometimes I've taken the mickey out of um, people who say that they're, you know, they're going to go and swim a river to raise awareness for water shortages all over the world or they're going to do this to raise awareness or and actually quite frankly and i think that they're um they're just excuses to validate going on a on a cool trip but you're one of the first people that i've spoken to who i i have i have no doubt that you are genuine in terms of that that reason but where do you sit in terms of pure selfish expedition to to it's all about doing it for other people where do you sit on that scale then or is it I think, I think, to be honest, I think it's a bit of both. The honest truth is when I did the North Pole, I did it thinking I don't want someone else to get shot because people feel like they don't have an option. Um, I did it thinking I want to be the person. I want my experiences to be out there. Um, I don't think I did it thinking I want to conquer the Arctic. Um, so in that instance, it was all about let me show people that there's so much more they can do. And I think it's nearer the end of um, purely... There was no selfish reasons for it. I didn't want to put myself in debt to go walk across ice. Um, I didn't want to spend months being laughed at. I didn't want to be ridiculed by the closest people to me. None of that made me feel... It didn't make me feel like people would say, oh, look how great you are. Um, and I think following that, every expedition I've been on has always been about showing people or building up the portfolio that I can use to tell stories. Because again, in Jamaica, people spoke a lot when I grew up and I grew up with a really old person. So a lot of the information that we got was exchanged through word of mouth. Uh, and that's the power of storytelling. It'd be oh, someone to shop, they tell you a story about what happened down the road. So I've always understood the power of storytelling. And I've always wanted to be able to tell more stories to get more people to do more interesting things. So for me, it's always been about what's the next thing that I can do to add to my repertoire of stories or, or my collection, my lexicon of stories that I can share with people or get other people doing stuff. Um, I don't think I've ever done anything to be the first or the fastest or the the longest. Or, I don't think I'm fit enough to even attempt to do those things, if you see what I'm saying. Um, there are some real superheroes out there who do the fastest, the longest, the furthest, the highest, the, you know. I'm not in that category. I'm just, I want to do it so I can come back to that group of people who would never normally look at this stuff. And I can say to them, look, guys, there's a viable career here for you. And you don't have to impress anyone. You don't have to have the latest gear. You don't have to have the best trainers. You don't have to follow that crowd. You can, you know, the world is open. And that's, that's what I want to get across. That's amazing. I mean, do you find, even though that you don't do it for you know selfish reasons or egotistical reasons i mean it still needs to be a cool expedition because you're trying to break through essentially yeah. you're trying to break through to kids who don't yeah. have this on their agenda at all you know and you're trying to introduce the potential for for yeah. achieving whatever you want to set out to achieve in life but you, you therefore need something quite cool 
to smash through that. Do you know what I mean? You couldn't you couldn't go in as a boring, really. Oh, by the way, you should go outdoors. It's really nice, and you'll feel wholesome <laughs> about yourself. It wouldn't work, would it? You know, you need to be no, quite dynamic to... and exciting, and as you say, a storyteller to for it to work. No? Yeah. So um, there's a few like sound bites that you can grab. First black person to the North Pole. It's like, oh, what's that about? Uh, walked across the desert, kayaked around at so-and-so, um, walked across South... Like, these sound bites are amazing. They're good to draw in a crowd. Uh, but then the substance has to also be able to hold that crowd. So I guess, to a degree, you, you're, you're absolutely right. You have to choose a, an adventure, an expedition that's going to intrigue and interest people. Um, and I think that's the difficulty nowadays, isn't it? I, I think my next one, funny enough, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to plug my next one. Absolutely, mate. Yep. It, it's going to be, it's, again, it's not about me. It's about me and my teammate, Phoebe Smith, taking 20 young people from across the, the Great Britain to Antarctica. And that's going to be next year we're going to be doing that. And I think that's how we're going to intrigue them now. It, we can talk about mountains, but now I think when people say, oh, I've conquered this mountain, I've done that desert, I've done this, the Arctic region... I think you only reach a certain number of people. The moment you involve a group of people, you've now expanded the reach. And I think by involving 20 young people from all different backgrounds across the across the UK, in fact, um, is a great way to get other young people to say, oh, what, what's that about? What are these guys up to? And, and that's what the next one's about. And when they get there, what are they doing? Are they an, an expedition to the pole or? No, no. no. So I think... Uh, this is going to be the world's first carbon negative expedition of its kind. Okay. Now, the plan is to take to find 20 young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Young people who, like me, never thought that adventures or expedition in would be something that they could or would or should do. Find them, eat them out of the crowd, take them from their communities and bring them on an expedition ship to Antarctica where they can get involved in real life science. There'll be um, microbiologists, deep sea biologists, geologists oceanographers, uh, meteorologists on this ship that they'll be taking part in real life science with. Um, so they're going to yeah. be doing something that will live on forever. And they're going to be seeing things that living in Cornwall or living in Devon or living in Lincolnshire, they would never get to see. And then they're going to come back and share that experience with their communities, man. Amazing, mate. So to get something like that off the ground, are you back into the realms of, is a lot of your time spent fundraising? Yeah, so... People can donate. We've got a Just Giving page. Um, it's If they go to teamwe2.com, they can see what um, what we're about, what we're trying to achieve. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, I feel like I live in that fundraising world, man. The only time I escape it is when I'm actually out there. When I'm when I'm at home, I'm always trying to, you know, penny pinch. Where can I save some money to put towards my next expert? Where can I get some money from? Who's going to be willing to, you know, throw a few pennies in the hat? Um, this one, it's 100k we're trying to raise. We're on our way. But we're trying to raise 100k to make this happen. And I know some people go on an expedition and for that one person, the expedition costs 100 grand. Now yeah. I'm saying, allow me to take 20 young people, the next generation of um, naturalists, the next generation of adventurers on this expedition for that same 100k. Uh, and it's going to be clean because it's going to be carbon negative. It's going to be great because they understand the relationship between how we live here and how uh, we impact the Antarctic region and vice versa. Um, I'm saying, give me a hundred grand and let me do this. Let me yeah. change 20 lives. That's amazing, mate. I mean, utterly amazing. I, I'm, I'm just, I just think that your story is absolutely fantastic. Is, are you uh, doing that as part of the Scouts or is that a separate thing to the Scouts? It's a separate thing, but I'd love... Um... Could some of them be Scouts then, potentially? absolutely so actually i'm i'm vying for two spaces to be scouts or explorer spaces the reason is um shackleton's final expedition he took two scouts with him and he died before making it to was it shackleton it was shackleton and he died before making it to antarctica didn't he so um those two scouts never made it to antarctica so in a spiritual way i'm bringing two scouts to complete that journey last question which i am asking to everybody but um how would you like to be remembered, Dwayne? Bro, uh, <laughs> I think I'd like to be remembered. <laughs> I think I'd just like to be remembered as the average guy that just just wanted more. I think that's it, man. Um, there's nothing special about me whatsoever, man. Um, there's nothing extraordinary about me. I'm not stronger than anyone else. Um, I'm not physically fitter than anyone else. I'm as determined as most or many people. 
Um, I'm that middle of the road guy, man. I'm not the smartest person. I'm, you know what I mean? I've got a degree and that's as, as smart as I get. Um, my other half will tell you I'm thick as like a short plank. Um, I'm a very average guy and I just want more. I want to be remembered as that guy. I, I get why you're saying that and you're incredibly humble, but but what you're doing is inspiring. You might be an average guy, but what you're doing is utterly inspiring. So, mate, fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks, Ed. I'll, I'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> thanks a lot, man. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms to get new episodes first thing every Monday. Monday.